Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Tina Frimmel, who started doing stand-up in Burlington, Vermont about five years ago and began building an impressive resume pretty much right away. She was Vermont's Funniest Comedian in 2018, appeared at the Limestone and New York Comedy Festivals, and was named a new face at Just for Last in Montreal all in 2019. I talked to her right before she moved back to New York City. She talked a lot about how having cerebral palsy has affected her approach to comedy and how she's able to find a home within the stand-up community. This is truly one of my favorite conversations. I know you're going to love her. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's only $5 a month. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Of course! Happy to be here. <laughs> How often do you do podcasts? I mean, not, not that much. Like... This might be like the fifth or sixth that I've ever done. But like I tend to like podcasts that have like a theme. Like right. the last podcast that I did was actually a MacGyver themed podcast. Really? Yeah. It's amazing. You had to like you know, you had to prepare your head to uh watch MacGyver, which I never have. I'll watch a whole episode and then just kind of comment, like kind of scrutinize uh, that episode and talk about why it's so bad. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, good. Um, ultimately, like the hosts of that podcast are actually fans of MacGyver. So we're not just roasting MacGyver all the time, but. But they are. <laughs> that Tough was love. Oh man. So MacGyver, I grew up in the eighties and well nineties really, but you know, I was mm-hmm. born in eighty three. So MacGyver was huge for a while. And yeah. like, you know, the whole joke was, oh, he can get out of any situation with like a paper clip and a stick of gum. Right. And <laughs> and then the Simpsons had a big storyline with MacGyver too. I don't know if I've ever really seen an entire episode. And yeah, that well, that's the thing. I'm too, I'm young, <laughs> like I'm too young. <laughs> I I grew up on MacGruber, you know, like, <laughs> like so. That's all that I knew. Like I just generally knew, like oh yeah, it's like MacGruber, but like not. <laughs> no, no, I think it was supposed to be a serious show. I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very, very dramatic. I mean, it's got, like, heartfelt stories and morals and explosions, <laughs> you know. I mean, I was actually a little a little bit, like, disappointed in the episode that I got. It didn't have any, like, really good, what they call MacGyverisms. Like, right. the whole duct tape, the whole, like, fixing things. <laughs> the one that I recall is the enemy blew up a boat that they thought he was on, but like driving. But it turns out it was a dummy that he made from like an oar <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like things in the boat and stuff. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, I guess. Although 
I did that when I was 10, you know, just made <laughs> figures. But it was cool, though. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, at least it got you on a podcast, I guess, if that's the goal. Uh, exactly, exactly. I, uh, podcast show. I'll do yeah. anything for a podcast. Oh, my God. It's it's really bad. I, I was on a podcast one time, and I got stabbed one time, so a lot of people like to hear that story. Stabbed? Oh, yeah. you never been stabbed? Come on. No. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> well, no. give it give it time. No, but I'll go on there and I'll tell the story. And the first podcast I was ever on just wanted me to go into as much detail as possible. And we recorded it around an alley behind this building. And I was like, in hindsight, I'm like, you know, I could have gotten stabbed again, but my need for putting my face out there could have led to my downfall. But I was safe. Yeah. I just need the attention. Was it was it random? Like, do you know the guy that stabbed you? <laughs> no, surprisingly, uh, nobody I know has stabbed me yet. It, it'll happen. But no, this is like I was in Baltimore walking around at night and I was on the phone with my grandma and two guys came up behind me and stabbed me. So it was oh my God. yeah, like the police said it was likely a gang initiation, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I lost like I needed two stitches. So and it missed yeah, every wow. missed every important part of my body. And then uh, I, I the only thing that happened was I don't have feeling on the left side of my stomach. Wow. Yeah. It, so but, you, could, you could actually be stabbed again. And absolutely. Be that bad. Well, yeah. that's what I say. Like, uh, I'll walk around at night, not even caring anymore. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine, would be like, "Aren't you worried?" I'm like, "No, I'm immune." It's, <laughs> it's like, like I've already been stabbed. Yeah. It's like chickenpox. Oh my god! <laughs> you just come home and look down. There's a knife in your side. Just oh god, damn it! <laughs> when will this stop happening? Like, like a tick. You know, you just come home and find it. <laughs> Why not? It's a it's a good uh, superhero move. <laughs> well, I mean, if I may, at least you know better you than like your grandma. You oh, know? without a doubt, yeah, and that's what she said yeah. too. Yeah, she's like, stab my grandson all you want, just leave me alone. But you no, sure. it, but it really wasn't. I mean, it was a big deal at the time, but in hindsight, you know, I couldn't have been better. It's a great bar story. And I podcast can, or absolutely I, I mean i've told out every podcast i've been on and then i have material with it on stage so oh, yeah. Uh, yeah so it's a win and of that's course. that's my theory is that you can do anything to me anything bad can happen to me as long as i can get two or three minutes on stage go for it <laughs> well that's the kind of funny almost bulletproof thing about being a comic is when shit things happen to you it's like a, a gift it's yeah. like oh my god a, a bit like a new bit a new story I know that like with me like anytime that someone might might say something to me about how I'm disabled and they they might be misunderstand it or think of one thing or another or say something just awful and I'm like yes so like <laughs> I, I I almost encourage it I'm like oh keep keep talking <laughs> like <laughs> I, need, I need a pen you know like it's yeah it's just 
like bad things happen and it's so like ah oh, i guess <laughs> well i just yeah. think being a comedian is a defense mechanism oh, and yeah. like like i grew up you know i had glasses and buck teeth and braces and you know i had to be in the band because my parents are both music teachers and yeah i mean there was just I mean, just a load of ammunition to use against me. And I think if I didn't answer anything with a joke or, you know, self-deprecation, I would have been just mowed over. So I think it was natural for me to become a comedian eventually. And I was a writer too, so that helped. But I needed an outlet for it. So, I mean, do you think that's pretty much how you became a comedian? Oh, yeah, entirely. Like, growing up, I was like in in a whole lot of denial about about how different I was. And I just kind of thought if I ignore it, it will go away. <laughs> like <laughs> like any minor medical affliction, you know. But it didn't. <laughs> no kidding. Like I, I talk about this all the time that I feel lucky in that I I discovered comedy and for me, at least, comedy was the one way that being disabled for me is okay. Like, I'm okay with it, you know? I I know that growing up, you know, even though I was a bit in denial, I never talked about being disabled. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I was still super aware of it in my mind. And I used humor to kind of kind of break the barrier to other people and a bit like signaling to other people that it's, you know, it's okay to talk to me. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a person and, and, you know, it was just kind of breaking the ice. So I think that a lot of kind of the, you know, natural uh, humor that I, I have just, as a person kind of developed, like you say, like as a defense and yeah, but now it's a career. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I watched a couple of your clips and like, I almost think you have to do it, but you started out every clip I saw with addressing that. And do you just, is it just something like not even you want to do, but you have to do just a, okay, here's, here's what you're all thinking. Yeah. Yes, because really, like, it entirely is, because I know that when I began comedy, well, I really quickly kind of realized that I had to address it in my comedy, because I think, like, the first time I ever got on stage, I talked nothing about that. (laughs) I talked all about fairies and poop and (laughs) coffee and stuff, like really kind of fantastical stuff like that. And people were just, was going way over their heads. They were not catching anything that I put out there. And then, like, finally, I remember the first time that I told the joke that I often begin my sense with, which is, I'm disabled, but don't worry, you're going to be okay. I love that. That's um, the first one I heard. Yeah, and it's it's like black magic. It like immediately, it's like the room just changes. Because the other thing that I, I realized a few years in the comedy, I would talk to friends that I had 
that I met, like, through comedy. And they would admit that the first time that I got up there and I began talking, they were racking their brains trying to figure out what's happening. <laughs> like, is she just really hot? Like, <laughs> is she disabled? Like, I know my a friend of mine said that he said that he thought, wow, that girl's hot, but she's so high. <laughs> That I was like, thank you. But, you know, I kind of am like, I'm not too bothered by that. I'm not like really that bothered by, by you know, people thinking that and whatever. But but for comedy, like, I think it's nice to ease their inner monologue of kind of like, should they be laughing? What's happening? Does this girl need help? right now <laughs> and like I, I find that once once I do kind of clear the air and be like yeah okay, yeah 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 it's that uh they're like ah oh, and they relax <laughs> and I think that they can just pay attention more <laughs> to be real yeah and I, with it. and I would imagine that as soon as you break the ice then they're like oh yeah it's comedian yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly like and, you know, I, I do have a lot of material about being disabled that I love to kind of explore. But the other cool thing about, like, having that first initial joke is if on a night I just don't want to talk about that, I can go into other things. And the coolest thing for me, I think, was figuring out that people are okay with me saying that one initial acknowledgement joke about me, but then going off and talking about, like, Kinder Eggs and, right. like, anything else. They're, they're on board, uh, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did you start doing comedy? Only about, like, four, four and a half years ago. Really not that long ago. Was it um, kind of a natural fit for you? Yeah, well, I I'd always kind of wanted to perform a lot, like in in high school and stuff, and I wanted to act or sing or whatever. And you know, once I got into college and I grew up a bit and kind of I began to come to to terms that that might not be a thing <laughs> for right. me. Um, and the the reality came in, but way after college, just happening to kind of get into comedy, it's weird because it feels a bit like out of nowhere, but actually kind of in hindsight, thinking back, thinking about being a theater kid and, and being the funny friend and the the person in class that was always like raising her hand and, and monologuing about whatever <laughs> we sing class time. It makes sense, basically. Well, it seems like, like I don't know, I, I look at your resume and I, I see all these comedy festivals and, and just for laughs and comedy clubs and, and the funniest comedian in Vermont. I mean, yeah. And that's only in four and a half years? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, 
Yeah, a lot of that stuff happened actually within two years or like a year and a half. I know that within about a year and a half, I I got, I think, like I got one one festival and that led to another festival and that led to like JFL. And it was this whirlwind, <laughs> like it was crazy. And the funny thing was, I always kind of knew, like in the back of my head, like this, this cannot last. <laughs> like, surely <laughs> something has to happen. It will all end. And and then COVID, <laughs> uh, it was kind of for foreshadowing of of um COVID and and the entire thing just stalled. So that was odd. Well, I I think you could take solace in the fact that in order to stop your momentum, a global pandemic had to happen. Yeah. You know, like that's how much steam you had. It's like all of this force to say, stop it. That's a great way to think about it, actually. (laughs) Yeah. That that global event was the only thing that could possibly coop me up. (laughs) So when you started doing comedy, it was in Burlington, right? Yeah. Did you get booked right away? I mean, like by club shows or not club shows, but bar shows and anything like that? Pretty close. Yeah. Well, like pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, I know that I actually was, I was that person who like, who began comedy, not at a mic, like a normal person, but at um, a class. <laughs> it's okay. a stand up comedy class at the Vermont Comedy Club. And it was like a six week, once a week class. And I know that like the the co-teachers that was Kendall Farrell, which is a, a lovely comic out in New York. And he actually, before the whole course ended, he he already booked me for uh this great show that they used to have um uh, called Comedy and Crepes down in uh, Burlington. So I kind of went off the back again to like get out there. It was a big learning curve, you know, just having to go from literally like doing comedy in a tiny classroom on like a Tuesday for like five people to suddenly having to be in public at like bars and stuff and all the nonsense that goes with that, you know? Right. Was that, I mean, just going out in public, were you nervous at all? I mean, I don't know, just, just being a comedian too, but being, having a disability, I mean, did that make you apprehensive? Yeah, I mean, kind of. Like, I was really, really curious as to like, yeah. what a bar would think of a person like me kind of going up there. But, I mean, that's actually kind of, why what what pushed me to to go ahead and bite the bullet was like a lot of my comedy is trying to show people that like I do belong here. <laughs> like, you know, right. you, you couldn't see me out at like a bar and it's so masochistic, but like the other thing that I loved about it was the fact that they were not expecting me. Like at all, yeah. You know, there'd be couples on a date in a bar with their gin and tonics, and and they would see me, 
<laughs> no, no, we just talk about like insanity, like like you know being cut off by a bouncer or like traumatic birth and, and all this all this stuff and um you know just having having them react and having them kind of what what him what was just amazing to me. I would actually say on stage like wow like I can't believe that it's Friday night you're off work you're drinking you're here listening to me talk about all this heavy stuff and I know they liked it like they were into it <laughs> who knows I just think like no comedian has it all together. Like there's a reason. I mean, I don't, it it could be anything, but there's a reason we're all on stage and it's like a neglectful childhood or, or, you know, family members who are drunks or whatever. It doesn't matter. So I think like, like no matter what affliction anybody has, I think the perfect home is within a comedy community because like, Oh yeah. It's just an Island of misfit toys. Exactly. Yeah, I I actually think about that a lot because a lot of my friends naturally now are comics, right? And you know, we'll we'll be out at like a, a beer garden, or whatever, just <laughs> just being crazy and and having the the dumbest conversations and and cracking each other up, and it really is like. Like we're all from different walks of life and different ages and different day jobs and all this stuff. And I don't know, I I wouldn't have it any other way because I really don't think that I would be so effortlessly accepted yeah, um, yeah. by just any kind of group. The thing that I think I like about comics, I never feel like the odd one out. Like, we're all kind of fucked up. Yeah, without a doubt. You know? And it, it's exactly, it's like we're all misfits. We're all just kind of randomly in the world coming coming together. <laughs> I remember my grandpa died, and we, my mom and I were at his wake, and... My mom and I, we have the same sense of humor and it's dark. It thrives on awkward moments and yeah. we just, we need to laugh. And we were there and it was kind of quiet. We're over in the corner and we're just making each other laugh, we're telling yeah. jokes, just to just make it fun of the family or whatever. And my mom and I, we look over and my dad is just glaring at us. We thought we were going to get kicked out of my grandma's wake or my grandpa's wake. Yeah. And like, that's how I knew, okay, no, I definitely belong in the back table with the comedians. Oh yeah. Because we can find a sick joke in any situation (laughs) and we rarely get our feelings hurt. You know, it's just, it's just a weird disorder. That is a good point. Also, actually, I mean, I like, I, (laughs) I think another reason that I, I can relate and talk to comics and hang with comics so much is I'm like that too. I, I never get offended. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I, I 
I love darkness and it's almost like the only way that I get offended is when people act like I'm made of, of glass, you know, and, and they, they think they have to tiptoe around me and be kind and, and gentle around me. And I, you know, comics are not like that. Comics will say shit to you. Um, <laughs> because they know that, that you know, it's like you say, it's that back table. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're, you're all there because you know that you're all, you all have that, that mindset, that laughing of, you know, kind of like, I don't know, it's just the way, I, well, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I, it's I, the best way. Yeah, but I, I just think it's a perfect place to be when I'm watching a comedy show. I love hanging out with the comedians and we're horrible audience members, but oh, yeah. <laughs> but we'll be back there and we're not making fun of the person on stage necessarily, but I like looking at the audience and finding what they find funny. And yeah. then my favorite part at a show and I produce a lot. So these are my shows. I love when a joke a comedian has doesn't go over. <laughs> Only if I know that's gone over before. Like, I just like the awkwardness in that moment. And I will laugh so hard when that happens and then apologize later because I'm yeah. like, that couldn't have helped. But I just, I really, really enjoy that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, I completely like that moment where a tried and true joke that a comic has bombs and like, they're not expecting it. Yeah. There's a silence, and then you hear in the back all the comics just like hysterically <laughs> laughing. Not, not at the joke that they've heard a hundred times, but just they laugh at your pain. <laughs> it's so good though, because we've yeah. all been there. Oh, yeah, completely. Yep. What was it like starting in Vermont? Because you moved to New York, and now you're back, I think, right? Yeah, okay. I am back. Although, boom, this is debut information. I am going to be back in New York oh, in great. Uh, June. Yeah. Well, congratulations. June forward. <laughs> Got me an what? apartment. <laughs> so. What was it like starting in Vermont? Oh, well, it was, well, you know, funny thing, I was just talking to my dentist this morning <laughs> about this. Um, so, like, you know, the funny thing is, New York audiences are very PC. You have to be very PC. I mean, Vermont's very liberal. They're very, uh, I don't want to, like, just say all this shit about Vermont, but, like, I mean, what, they're they're lovely, but, right. but they're they're they can be timid. They're not really so raunchy, and I genuinely think that makes you a better comic because they will not take to any kind of shock humor, even like at bars. You have to kind of not like clean, but you have to keep it like light, you know? Right. So, like, for me, that really, it really kind of forced me to write this style of comedy, especially comedy about di- disability that was upbeat and that was kind of, it had like an upswing where I would say awful things that, that people have 
said to me or hardships that I have, but then have that comeback or have that kind of punchline that that goes above it, you know, and is a little bit of like a a more inspirational kind of optimistic tick. And I think I'm actually so glad <laughs> that I grew up in, in an environment where I felt like I had to write like that because, A, it really did develop my company in that I realized I actually like writing jokes that go upbeat at the end. Right. But also, like, when I came to New York or Boston, and it, I realized I could actually go darker in some places and, and push that up. And I loved it. It was like having a treat, you know, and just, it, it felt like extra, extra devilishly good. I wonder if it's like this, like, like, cause I'm in Binghamton, New York and nobody here has any morals. Like we're, we're just, and especially comedians, yeah. like, like most of our comedians, myself included, we start dark. And some of us stay that way. Some of us go lighter. I went a little bit lighter. And I wonder if you basically had to learn the fundamentals of comedy and then explore. Because, like, you want, you probably had to write good punchlines. And because if you're writing cleanish type material, you have to have those punchlines. Right. You can't rely on, oh, and then I took a shit at the park and this lady saw me. Like, so I, I think that's probably beneficial for you. Yeah. Yeah, and the other cool thing is I, I learned how to be shocking without being dark. And by that, I mean that about a year and a half into my comedy, I wrote this extra large bit about how I became disabled <laughs> and, and my birth. And, and it was this really kind of horrific thing. And, and uh, with, within that, you know, that whole bit it has gory details and it has death in it, and, and within that it also has deprecation. <laughs> like, right. like I, I actually begin to pound on myself a bit, but it, it's never like shocking. It's never offensive, but it's really challenging. <laughs> and and I I love to just watch all the all the faces. And then, like I say, because my comedy always is a bit like that that game, like the balloon, like keep the balloon off the ground kind of thing. Yeah. So um, I'll say something really kind of dark or gory or uh, heavy, but then I'll come, I'll come at it and sometimes I'll literally actually be like, you know what, let's take a break. How about... Here, here's another joke about <laughs> Kinder Eggs, <or> whatever. <laughs> and then I'll come back to it. And and yeah, I think the the more kind of mature that I got into comedy, the more I got to realize how I can, even with like very conservative, gentle Vermont crowds, I can actually kind of challenge them. Right. Without without shocking them. You've gotten on stage a little bit recently in Vermont, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So how long were you in New York? So let's see, from November, let's see, November 1st, 2019 right. to May. 
Okay. <laughs> so you got so, yeah. so you had seven full months in New York. Did well, you technically, <laughs> yeah, but, but like it, you know. Yeah, yeah. The whole city shut down in March, so it was only about four. Okay. So are you able to measure how your time in New York has helped you come back to Vermont? Yeah, actually, you know, I sort of in a way that I I definitely am less fearless now, I think. Okay. To at least try and push the envelope in. And the other thing, on New York, you really feel the pressure more than in Vermont to constantly be writing new stuff because everyone is. And I, I realized going down there that that up in Vermont, Vermont kind of, I don't know, it put a bad habit in me where once I found a great joke, I just ran with it for like a year. You know? Okay, yeah, yeah. Same kind of set for like four months or five months. But, and then whenever I did have a new bit, I would be terrified. It would feel like I'd never done comedy before. Would just, my heart would race and I would be like a deer in the headlights up there. But in New York, I definitely kind of got chucked in the deep end. <laughs> I learned quick how to, how to really power through and constantly, uh, take Things that I had never said before, and say them confidently. You just see, <laughs> just see what the reaction is. And um, well, I I think yeah. What I'm ultimately trying to say is, I got over the fear of having a bit bomb. Right. <laughs> so, well, okay. So when a bit bombs, how do you recover from that? Oh, well, I mean, luckily, I just I feel like I have enough. I have enough like older, better stuff. But the thing I think because I am also still new, like I'm an under five year old comic. Right. I haven't like mastered that great recovery, you know, like that that directly swooping in on your own set and just doing crowd work or whatever. And, and recovering it that way, I, I feel like that's something I really, it shows my immaturity as a comic in that I, yeah, I, I just tend to kind of hurry on to the next thing. So yeah. I haven't quite found that that thing yet. To, yeah, that's uh, kind of what I do. I, I'll say something because it happens a lot. And I'll say... Oh yeah, well that one's for me. Or yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like that, like that's for me. Or like I'll be like, oh, that's for my friend in the back, and that will get no reaction. Right. So, <laughs> Not even from no. your friend in the back. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, and it's awful because sometimes it's on like a joke that I think would crush, and then it's just nothing. The thing I hate most about having a joke bomb is that, like you said earlier, like you don't ever plan for it to bomb. No. And like you're, it screws up your timing. And like I remember I was, was working out material for – it might have been my first contest I ever did. And, you know, I left time for laughs. <laughs> and that's, that was not a good thing. And so I'm like, yeah. like I, I'm like, okay, I'll pause here. And then nothing happened the first time I had a joke that I expected something big. And I was like, oh, no, now what? And yeah. I jumbled the entire set list. And back then I was doing a lot of one-liners. So 
the way I remembered them was by telling them and then, okay, that would lead to that, that transitions to this. Right. And then once I took my, I don't know, 17th joke and put it where my fourth should be, I was screwed. So, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like, well, okay, here we go. And I think that's just like, okay, well, I haven't been on stage that long and I'll learn it eventually. And yeah. obviously the goal yeah. is not to, okay, well, let me think of how to get out of this. You don't want it to happen. Yeah, exactly. I know that for me, it's not quite bombing, but the set that I wrote is kind of written for able-bodied people to laugh at. Um, So whenever whenever I do get booked at um, disability events and stuff like that, it's great and I love doing them, but it's bizarre because uh, it's like... They laugh, but they laugh at different things than just a normal crowd. And like you say, that timing is so crucial. And even when they're not bombing, like they are laughing, but they're not they're not laughing at the way right. things. It can just screw you up so bad. And yeah, I would lose my spot all the time and leave out tags and and yeah was I have to get better at that I think have you ever run into a situation like at one of those where one of those events where people are mad that you're joking about your disability well shockingly no actually and I was so worried about that the first time that I got booked at a conference like a disability conference I was terrified <laughs> like I was just like, oh, God, just, okay, just get through it. Try not to be punched on the way out the door. <laughs> um, but, I mean, and w- when they when they really got something out of it, I was so, not, like, shocked, but, like, I didn't expect it. <laughs> like, I, and, uh, but that's what I mean, like, Disabled people, not not to make like a big generalization, but a lot of them are so funny. Like, right. They have the biggest senses of humor of all the people. And I think it's not just me. Like, uh, it can be hard to, sometimes to offend a person like in a wheelchair in comedy. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because. It's their life. They hear everything. Like, and when when a person gets up there that knows what it's like, and and is kind of talking down at it, I know they 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 appreciate that. I know that one of the best things I ever heard was doing comedy, and and I had a woman come up, and I actually thought she would be offended. Because when she began talking, she said, like, my son was born traumatically. And she said, I never, I never thought I would ever laugh at traumatic birth. But I just did. Wow. And that was insane to me. Like, that that gave me, I think, a feeling that, that I, ne- I never felt this kind of pride that I had never felt before. And I thought, that's why. <laughs> that, that's kind of what the, what what I want this to be all about. 
That's incredible. Yeah, like I would think you hear something like that and you're like, okay, that'll keep me going for another year or two. Exactly, exactly. The only time a person's ever been offended by me, and I actually tell this story on stage, but it's a woman who came up to me one time and said like, oh, I I loved it. I thought it was so funny. And then she said, but I gotta be honest, for the first half of your like 20 minute set, I thought that you were faking it. You <laughs> <laughs> thought you were a monster. And so, yeah, and so like, like it, it was awful because um, this was at a Vermont Democratic fundraising event, right? So, like, this is like what this woman thought was happening, right? She thought that I'm a completely normal comedian. And one day I get a call to do like comedy at a Vermont Democratic fundraiser. And I just think to myself, oh, yeah, yes, they'll love this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Now's the perfect time to introduce this new character I have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, they love diversity. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how much they love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, who, who'd you watch growing up? Who'd you listen to? What comedians inspired you? Well, the funny, the funny thing is that growing up, I wasn't really that much into comedy, but my brother was. He was all into Colin and Jim Norton, and being the younger sibling, yep. I would kind of watch whatever he watched. So I, I got really, I think that it's kind of funny that, like, I actually got into comedy from the darker end of things. But then I got really into British comedy in college, and... Um, begin to watch that and, and also being in Vermont, I'm not that far away from JFL. Right. So I know that I went up there with a friend uh, to see like one one comic that I knew from like television and I got there and I realized just how how big of an industry comedy was and that's kind of when the light bulb went off for me, I think like I wonder if I could do that, you know? Now, does your brother want any credit for your development? <laughs> Maybe. He, <laughs> he hasn't said anything about But, I mean, he doesn't have to. Like, I I do really credit kind of him. And he's a really funny guy. He's really into, into the weird stuff, the adult swim stuff and and, you know I I always am glad that I had him in my life for all that and and so I could see just how dark and how wacky and bizarre that comedy could be because you know then then I could see how wide the spectrum is you know because I also like on my own I loved Things like Full House and stuff, stuff like that. Oh, love yeah. it. Love it. Full House is yeah, one of my favorite was, shows. Love it. <laughs> I 
I was selling to Full House, and one day my brother was like, oh, you like Full House? You like Bob Saget? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then we, and then we, we watched The Aristocrats. That's great. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. So. <laughs> the Aristocrats is so good. It's like, <laughs> it's like 90 minutes of telling one joke as creatively as possible and as dirty as possible. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I know that he told me about that joke when I was only about fourteen. So, <laughs> so like, like I say, like, I mean, and the whole, the whole existence of that joke is all about shock, yep, shock yep. and comedy. You know how shock is comedy. You know, and I, yeah, I. I <laughs> Who knows if that did me good in the long run, but but I like to think it did. I think you're doing okay. I think I'm doing okay. Wouldn't it be funny if one I would love to someday record my own aristocrats joke. Maybe on, on like my 10th anniversary of doing comedy, I'll release my version. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what your joke would be? Oh God! You don't need to say it now. I'm just wondering. Yeah, I've never because well, it's it's basically this this traveling family is yeah. you know performing and then fill in the blank and then the punchline is what do you call it? The aristocrats. <laughs> so like, it will, it will probably right. I mean, it will probably have a lot of crazy gore in it because I love horror movies and actually before I. I really got into comedy i actually wanted to be a gore effect artist why i mean maybe you can answer this for me why do all women it seem love horror movies i don't know i mean i definitely for me it exercises well i I think that is kind of that bigger picture of like, okay, we're in the world and, and we know, we know that the world is full of really great, of good things and really good things and really, really good things and in the opposite direction. And there's so like the possibilities of things that can exist or happen in the world is so big that I, I, you know, I don't know. For me, I think it's just exploring, feeling like you can explore how dark can we go? Like, how dark can we imagine things to go? And and not feeling ashamed by that morbid kind of curiosity. And and I think it's also, like, that thing that, that, like, Stephen King says, that if we feel... if we get a lot of fear from like monsters and ghosts and and decapitations, we don't have to think about actual scary things like cancer and like you know growing old <laughs> and and uh, being alone and stuff like that. And <laughs> I think I, I think there's so much truth to that that. It's almost like a coping thing. Yeah, that, like it, it distracts you from reality. Yeah, yeah, because it's so unrealistic. Like, yeah, it, it's so it's so ridiculous. Yeah, 
I, I think ultimately it's just a bit like how you stretch your body is. And like, for instance, comedy and laughing hard, <laughs> like that stretching it, your mind in one way and then horror in stretching it in the opposite way. Like, oh, how, how much horror can I take? You know? Right. What's your favorite horror movie? So I love the campy shit. So, and uh, literally, because my current favorite horror movie is Sleepaway Camp. It's I've heard of it. Like, I've never watched it. I, I'm not a horror uh, guy. Mike, <laughs> it's so good. So I'll it's, listen for you, okay? <laughs> it's like very, very it is very campy. It's was a bit notorious for the ending, but um, really, really funny and got that good eighties gore. You know, that's all practical, practical, nothing digitally added, which is awful. You know? right. but also the characters are just so funny. <laughs> like they're so wacky. Did you? Here <clears throat> now, I'm, I'm way older than you, but did you ever watch? Killer Clowns from Outer Space? No, not yet. I'm okay, okay. to see that. All right. So that was the first movie I remember watching ever. Because yeah, wow. my, yeah my parents, it would have been back in like 86 or 87. We had HBO for the first time. And I just was up watching it with them. And I don't think they thought I would retain it or anything. Yeah. It is not a great movie. But I mean, no. it's it's not meant to be, I don't think. What do they think? Like, oh, you like it? It's got clowns. I guess, but you know what? Here's the thing: I don't like clowns now. <laughs> like, you know. well, yeah, I mean, yeah, oh. and it's it's like stop motion, right? No, it's I don't like, think so. I really don't know the details, but I remember, and I have it. I think I borrowed it from a friend and never give it back. Yeah, but I remember the clowns. What they would do is they would wrap you. Let's say. They would wrap you in a cocoon of cotton candy. That's right. And then they would put a crazy straw in the cotton candy, and then they would drink your blood. Well, yeah. like a spider, basically. Basically. I mean, I watched it a couple years ago. It must have been on Netflix. Yeah. And I watched it, and I'm like, all right. Like, that's <laughs> fine, right. but I can't imagine. I mean, it was a B movie right away. So oh, yeah. I'm sure it didn't cost them much money they, to take. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting to see. I think I saw like the Demi Kill account for that. Okay. Which is like a YouTube channel, but you can kind of watch movies without watching movies. You know, it's it's like a whole summary of it. But yeah, I I have to watch that one. I, I know that as a kid, I went to a party and we saw. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I've heard of it. I mean, that's yeah. obviously legendary. I've never watched it. I got really, really freaked out by that, ironically enough. Because as a kid, I was a huge, you know, just afraid of everything, kind of. And I remember that, that I got really, really bothered by that, by the ending. Um, Just the ending was the whole alien thing and the ending of him and he's taken over by this alien and he's like pointing and screaming at a person and that just ugh, I did not go for that at all. And now it's a meme. 
So I gotta see it all the time. Have you gone back and watched it again? Yeah, I, I will because the other thing, and I don't know if I dreamt this, but like the only other part of it I remember is like in the climax of that movie, like when all the scary stuff is happening, and like I remember like a dog runs up to the main character and barks at him, but like. The dog had like a human face. I don't know yes. if I remember that correctly. And that really freaked me out. So I I don't know if I have to go back and like see like was that a real thing or did I like dream that or whatever? I'm not I'm not that sure. But. Yeah, like I'm not wired for horror. I and I I like it, but yeah. I'm not gonna go for it right away. And this is how bad I am. I've got one recurring nightmare that I have every once in a while. It hasn't been a long, hasn't happened in a long time. But do you remember the cartoon He-Man? Yeah. Yeah, it was of He-Man, but not even a character <laughs> there. It was, I used to dream of like this toy coming after me. And it wasn't even just a toy. Ooh. It was it was like a carrying case for a toy. Just a oh. skeleton, like dinosaur type thing that would run after me. And like... So that, yeah, that started when I was like six or seven. And I think if I introduce all this horror into my life, then I'm just introducing, okay, well, I'm opening the door. Come and get me. Everybody yeah, else, well, Dean Coons, yeah. Stephen King, come on. Come on over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think that that is also part of the reason why I can watch um, at the age of like, I think, 13. Nightmare was just stopped. Oh, really? Like, I don't get nightmares. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but but I can, even right before bed, I can watch anything, and it will not affect me. But we, so, <laughs> I'm, I'm about to analyze your dream. So, is it like a toy size thing, or is I, it like big? I think it's big. So the toy, what it was, it was this white dinosaur type toy that okay. had, you know, skeleton type face. Okay. And what you did was you clipped action figures onto the side. So that's how huh. I had it. So I own this thing. And then, yeah, it must have been regular size or, you know, whatever I was when I was seven or eight. And this thing would just attack me as <laughs> a monster. So, Yeah. Interesting. What is it kind of like a you'd be running and it would be running after you or it would just come at you? No, so, I think I was running from it. Yeah. So I don't know how it started, but that's and really I think it's it happens, I would say it's pretty infrequent, but maybe once every year or two. I'll have a dream like that. Yeah, it's it's really strange. Have you ever like had a dream that you realized that you were dreaming and then you could just control? dream i don't think so <laughs> as shitty as this is like the dreams that i get almost always like like if i have like a sex dream yeah they, they will always end before anything good happens I, oh, of course always and yeah. it's like like i'll get so close and like no oh, like inevitably that'll happen but like yeah i don't remember a ton of dreams i had a dream one time where I just watched Crashing. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Oh, yeah, was, yeah. So I must have been in, I got a picture right here, Sarah Silverman. I was in her house, probably crashing, you know, uh, and <laughs> I saw a deer out of her first story window and her sliding glass door. 
And that's it. Like it was just, oh, I was hanging out at Sarah Silverman's house and there was deer. Like those are the type of dreams I remember. But wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, analyze that one. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, well, the, the thing for me, why it's so weird that I have no nightmares because a lot of my dream, dreams are like affected by like actual thoughts that I've had. Like, that day and so I'm like I know like if I'm a crush he'll appear in the dream <laughs> like all the time like and well I I think it's almost worse than a nightmare like you said with like sex dreams for me it's more like romantic dreams where right. it's like oh my god like they're they're into me <laughs> like it's that kind of like revelation of like they just reveal to you that they that they like you too, and, right? And but before like anything happens, it just ends. Are yeah. you able to go back and fall asleep and dream, like pick up the dream where you left off? Oh God, I oh I try. <laughs> <laughs> it never works. No, like I I and it's so like it's so sad. <laughs> like yeah, I try and go back just just be like, wait, no. <laughs> like even even though I know that it's a dream at that point, I just like I I want to be like, just let me have this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me have the moment though. But the well let me just say the key. I've only been able to try this one time and it worked. But the key, if you think you're dreaming, pick up a book and try to read it. Because you cannot read in your dream. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I never... Except for, like, a sign. Like, you can read, like, a sign. But, like, your brain cannot... uh, Refuses to create text for you to, to read. It will be like gibberish. Right. Yeah, I've heard that you can't die in your own dream. But oh, yeah. that's that's the only thing I've heard about that stuff. Yeah, probably because your brain like just doesn't know how to what it will be like. Uh yeah. Yeah, that makes that, that makes complete sense because like nobody knows the answer. Like nobody, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, oh, okay, well, the afterlife would be such an easy question if somebody had come back. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's but we can't do that. Can't do that. Yeah. Well, like, you know, I I died as a baby, like at birth, but like obviously don't recall anything quite <laughs> light. No memories? Nope, none. I wish I wish I could come back as like this prophet, you know. Maybe maybe you are. You're you're maybe. dictating your dreams, you know that. Maybe I'm dreaming right now. <laughs> well, oh. I guarantee no woman has ever had a dream and said, Oh, Mike Peters is there talking. Uh, so I get it. And like, Mike was said, Oh <laughs> I ask everybody this. Do you remember the worst set you've ever had? Ooh. Okay, yeah, let me think about that because and not to jinx it, but like I've never I've never had like a set that was so Got awful that I'm like, oh yeah, here it is. Right, right, right. But yeah, I mean, me think. Yeah, I mean, like I, I don't have a story, but I do know that that like 
uh, because I grew up in Millbury, Vermont, which is a big, big theater town. Um, so whenever people, people know me there, like they watch me grow up and, and stuff like that. So they're always saying, oh, come here. Like we want to see your comedy. But the thing is that a lot of what I call theater audiences, they're just silent. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they, they're like, don't laugh, just enjoy it. So, um, definitely, I, I would say that the, probably the worst. Okay. I got it. I, I had to talk myself there, but I got it. <laughs> so the worst show that I ever had was obviously my own show that I produced. It was at this uh, movie theater, a very, very small movie theater. And the first time we did it was sold out, packed uh, up with people that I knew. And then the next month we did it again. And like the second or third time, like two people were there. Like, and we're so small that, oh, oh, and by the way, they were not laughing, like, Mm -hmm. at all, like, nothing. And so it was two of them, all the comics, my mom, I think that's it, and, and, like, the bartender. And I remember it was so small that I actually made made everyone in the room gather in a circle with chairs and I just sat in the circle like an AA meeting you know (laughs) and I just I just said my I don't think I even had the mic I just said my jokes at them like a conference (laughs) because it was so it was so painful that I was like you know what I'm my feet are tired. Like <laughs> this is not even worth the energy standing. So I just sat down and said, "Okay, guys, you're here for jokes. Here are jokes. Drink your cocktails, and then we can all finally go home." <laughs> <laughs> and the fun, the funny thing, it kind of worked. Like they actually began to laugh. Like within the circle, yeah. I I think ultimately, like whenever I do a show that's like minimal people, like no one comes. I found that like kind of looking at it more like okay, you know, if you're out at dinner with like four friends and you you make more laugh, that feels good. Yeah. So like I just. I kind of look at it like that. I'm like, okay, well, we're all just chilling, and maybe I'll say something that you like, and and uh, yeah, <laughs> otherwise, just whatever. So I think a lot of people, a lot of my comedian friends who haven't produced shows, they don't realize the amount of stress that comes with only have an audience of your mom and a couple friends. It's like, you feel like you failed completely in every direction. And those audiences with four people, they're harder than any room with a hundred. Yes. Oh yes, exactly. Well, the funny thing is they can either be like awful or if they're all like friends and they're all drunk and 
it can be like great, you know. Yeah. So you talk at them, they'll talk back at you. And, but yeah, it's it's a bit, you know, it so it hits your soul, you know, when you're only doing came out of your house to perform for four people. How but, early in your career was this? I think year two. I want to say so, so kind of early. <laughs> Right. I mean, you're in your fifth year now, so it wasn't that long ago, but like, you know, yeah. it was right before Just for Laughs and, and you really broke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of before anything. Well, had the shows been easier since Just for Laughs? Yeah, well, I mean, the funny thing about JFL, that was a great weekend, but so nerve-wracking because I never felt like I couldn't be available to our network. And I felt like I constantly had to be in the hotel lobby with all the industry and like out there and I couldn't go to any show because I couldn't shake the feeling of like oh my god but I have to be around and talk to people and like right. get get that contract over and the other thing I felt so way in over my head like here were all these great comics and then us, you know, <laughs> we're like the freshmen, and so the ironic thing is, by the time that, that we actually got to our show performing, I, I relaxed because I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Like something that I know how to do. <laughs> I'm in my element, and even though it was in a huge theater. It was, I think, the most relaxed, chill <laughs> I felt the entire weekend. So, and I, I think that that ultimately showed me, like, oh my god, I can perform chill, you know, <laughs> I can, I can do this, and I don't have to be hyped up and and you know, buzzing and nervous, and like, I can actually get away with it being comfortable <laughs> i mean do you want to be on stage for the rest of your career i mean is that you want to be a performer or a writer i mean do you just feel just better on stage yeah well i i think over the past year i have actually gotten more into writing for screening and i'm actually uh hoping to develop this project that i have which would be an expansion of my comedy on screen. And, uh, but going into that whole world and writing and acting for, for screen, I think ultimately I did realize that, yes, <laughs> like I think no matter what, where my career goes, I will always kind of be also that person that's on the road or goes out to do a show on Monday <laughs> and um I don't know there's something about it that that you cannot get from writing for a show writing right. for television or a film or acting there's just that that connection and it's so fun you know that yeah uh, the funny thing is pre-pandemic I was actually thinking about that thinking like well how long do, do I really want to be at clubs you know going performing and I, I was really thinking about like maybe within 
a certain amount of years calling it and being like, okay, now I'll write for the rest of my career. But I think after the pandemic, I, I, I really severely kind of changed my tune on that. And I'm like, nope, perform until I die. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I, I, I don't think there's a good replacement for being on stage and getting those laughs. There's, I don't know where else you would get that high. And I don't do drugs, but man, when I don't perform, I get depressed. I get yeah. in my head and I have not figured out a way to substitute anything for those laughs. I know that I realize that without comedy, without performing, even though I am developing other projects and things are happening, my my like self-confidence is in the basement, you know? And yeah, I, I think that that like you kind of realize that hole that that performing fills in you and that you kind of you you know, that's why it works. <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine myself I love producing. But, you know, if I can't host the show or do 10 or 15 minutes on the show, I just, eh, it's not the yeah. same. It's, I really, I feed off of the energy and that's the adrenaline I need. Exactly. That's like how you connect. A lot of people will ask me, you know, like, what if you ever have a bad day and then you book that night? Like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh my God, that's like, I thank God. <laughs> Because, yeah, it's like the ultimate redemption, I think, of of a bad day is, uh, I mean, if it's a shitty set, then, then whatever, it doesn't go bad. <laughs> but um, I've definitely had bad, bad days and really been hard on myself and self-conscious and then gone and had, like, a, a really great set. And or even just a fine set, but just being there and connecting with people, it's, it's unreal. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate it. It was so good getting to know you. And I won't take up any more of your time, but thank you so much for doing this. Of and how can people follow along with you on social media? Yeah, totally. So I'm on all the socials, but especially Instagram. Um, just at Tina from all, just my name, easy. I know. I'm glad you said it too. And like, I knew how to pronounce it. But like, the more times I hear it, the better. Oh yeah. Well, I I always tell people it's like Jimmy Kimmel, but from all. <laughs> but yeah, I I think of the best the best comment that I've ever gotten from a host being like, "What what fuck is your name?" I'm like, "Oh, it's like." From all, yeah, F R I M L, and they were like, "Oh, like an app, <laughs> like yeah, I guess kind of like Tumblr, you know, like the way that Tumblr is spelled." Yeah. So it's like that. It's like F R I M L. Right, you're just missing a vowel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Vowels are for weaklings, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm not weakling. I'm check. <laughs> uh, you're the best. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. This has been awesome. Hey, I'll talk to you in a bit, okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm.